Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday 27th of November 2016. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial, or you can have a listen from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash radio blue, where you'll also find a bunch of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. My name's Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook, and today's weather, I seem to say this uh, just about every week that I'm on the show, a bit of a mixed bag in Melbourne today. Hopefully some of this cloud burns off, but we're heading for a top temperature of about 20 degrees. Um, good news is there's some fairly light winds coming in from the southwest, uh, reaching a top of about 21 kilometres an hour. Um, but as always, uh, that's no reason for complacency. Be very careful if you're out on the uh, out on the bays, as always. Now, today I'm joined in the studio, uh, very lucky to be joined in the studio by someone who has over four decades of experience in the marine science area. 
um, Dr. Hugh Kirkman. Uh, good morning, Hugh. Good morning, Andrew, and thank you very much for inviting me here. That's an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we can uh, repeat the dose a few times in 2017, Hugh, because uh, as I've just explained to the audience, you've got a wealth of experience in the marine science area, and it'll be, uh, it'll be great to have you on the show. So today we'll be discussing a whole range of items with, uh, with Hugh. Uh, it's got to be said that in my role as President of Marine Care Point Cook and also a member of the Jawbone Marine Sanctuary Care Group, uh, I often give our listeners a fairly, I, I guess, a, a warm and fuzzy view on marine sanctuaries and marine protected areas in general. And I want to spend a little bit of time today chatting to Hugh about marine protected areas and how they fit with the um, the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Protocols for Establishment of Marine Sanctuaries. It's a pretty hot sort of an issue, and I don't want today's conversation to come across as necessarily negative, but we've got to remember how marine sanctuaries fit in uh, in the global scheme of things and what they've uh, what they're intended to actually protect. So that's going to be a very good discussion we'll have with Hugh, amongst other things. Seagrass is Hugh's uh, one of Hugh's absolute specialties, so we'll have a good chat to Hugh a little bit later on about that. Be back in a sec, just a brief community service announcement, and then Dr Hugh Kirkman. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others The recognition were. of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Welcome back to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on the AM dial, and you are listening to Out of the Blue. So, uh, Dr Hugh Kirkman, uh, Hugh, can you give us a bit of an idea about uh, what you've been doing for the last, uh, you know, it works out to about 42 or 43 years, an amazing career in marine science. Can you give our listeners a bit of a feel for uh, for what your path has been? Thank you for making me feel so old, Andrew. <laughs> um, I started uh, in CSIRO, um, in Moreton Bay near Brisbane as a technician um, trying to find out where the juveniles of the commercial um, crop of prawns came from. And of the 32 sites we were um, trawling on to find these juveniles, 16 were seagrass. Nobody knew what this stuff was. Right. In fact, when I started, they didn't have the right names for that. Right. And there were two of us who were working on seagrass in Australia and uh, the other one... Uh, Marion Cambridge worked in Western Australia, so we were a long way apart from each other. Yes, yeah. Um, um, my my first work was to go out and trawl, but then uh, I was the only one who took an interest in what we were trawling on, and we found that it was seagrass, and there were thousand times more prawns in the uh, juvenile prawns in the seagrass than there were on the bare sand. Right, and that's that's because it's such an important nursery area for, uh, for those crustaceans. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Of course, it's a it's a, um, a protective area as well as holding a lot of organic matter for the prawns to eat. Um, this was important, and then. Um, as we went along, we found one area was uh, the seagrass was dying. Um, this was at Torbal Point, where the Kubulja River comes out, and this was I found out later was because of the, all the development that was going on in Kubulja. Right. Um, and so uh, 
I wrote a couple of papers on that and I found some flowering seagrasses that other people hadn't ever seen before and, and wrote papers on that. And then I was transferred to Sydney. Um, I worked in Sydney on, um, the, uh, on a project that was looking at the carbon flow of uh, everything in a, in a bay right in the middle of Sydney in Port Hacking. Okay. And uh, for two years I worked there. Um, this was a different species of seagrass, but all the time I was reading um, and writing papers on what I'd found. Okay. And I did a trip to the uh, United States in 1976 uh, ran in the Boston Marathon and then <laughs> and then toured around the rest of the states uh, on greyhound buses. Uh, but all the seagrass people there invited me to stay in their houses, and so I learned a lot from them. And I also made a lot of friends, which I still have Fan- back from 1976. Fantastic! So a very sort of vibrant community. Yes, the yes there people. still is. That's great. Yes, yeah. And you mentioned just before here that people didn't even have the terminology right. So as far as Australia was concerned, people didn't even know what the hell seagrasses were, basically. No. Uh, and even now, a lot of people don't understand what the difference is between a seagrass plant and a and a seaweed. And a seaweed, right? Now, the seagrasses came into the sea from the land, but the seaweeds have always been in the sea right. for millions and millions of years. So they're much older plants, much simpler plants uh, than seagrasses. When seagrasses came into the sea, they brought with them. Um, attributes from the land plants. So they have flowers, they have pollen, they germinate um, just the same as a a land plant. There are no bees buzzing around (laughs) uh, fertilising them, but um, just in the last six months, um, someone has found that some very small uh, invertebrates, um, animals without backbones, are pollinating some of these seagrasses as well. So that's quite interesting for us because that's brand new. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, these plants have very long and strong underground stems called rhizomes, like a pl- like a couch grass on the land, and this holds the bottom down. So that's almost like the root system. Right? It is almost. There are roots, but they're not not as well defined or as large as the rhizome system. Right. And this holds the sediment together and holds the the. Uh, plants in the sediment, whereas seaweed, which I mentioned earlier, is held on to rocks yep. by a hold fast or by a simple um, structure right. that's attached to the rocks. But seagrass doesn't do that at all. Okay, so seagrass, in other words, would have a very prominent role when we look at whether it's a marine protected area like Point Cook or whether it's um, you know sand patch out in the middle of nowhere, uh, consolidating the sediment and making sure it doesn't erode from the, from the beach. Um, that's true, but it has other uses too, which are equally useful for instance it slows the water passing over it now any water that's got small sediments in it which may be organic matter or just sand and 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 mud that drops out into the seagrass bed and there are many many uh, animals tiny animals that are eating that and feeding from it and nutrients come from that as well so that's another good reason for seagrass it keeps areas clean yes um then uh, on top of that, there's a nutrient turnover of um, uh, material that falls out of the seagrass bed, goes to the bottom, and then the seagrasses use that up later as it breaks down by bacteria or by little animals. Yep. But most importantly, nowadays, in the last few years, um, the seagrass beds, including and, and mangrove and salt marsh, are holding carbon dioxide. Yes. which is very, very important. It's, um, 
it's a, an area where the carbon dioxide is held there, not like a tropical rainforest, which is producing leaves, and the leaves fall to the bottom, broken down, and carbon dioxide is given off. But that doesn't happen in seagrass beds because the carbon dioxide can't get away. So it's held in the sediment or in the water. Right, right. Yeah, so they obviously a crucial role, yes. crucial role going forward with so yeah. much fossil fuel emissions and all those sorts yes. of things to, uh, to to take care of. Yes. Oh, it's incredible. So this has been presumably one of the most, I mean, obviously the most fascinating thing uh, in the marine science f- sphere for you. In, in t- this has basically shaped your career, the um, seagrass. Yes, it has. Um, I was eventually transferred to Perth where I spent 17 years working on seagrass but I I actually started off working on kelp um, which is uh, a seaweed, uh, quite a simple plant but it was a most important component of the reefs offshore from Perth Um, and I I did some work on that and uh, CSIRO also wanted to know about the commercial uses of seaweed so I did quite a lot of work on that. Right. But seagrass isn't very commercially useful. In parts of the world, you can eat the seeds, big seeds, but that's in the tropics, um, and sometimes the leaves are woven. But really, it's not; it doesn't have a great commercial value. In the old days, it used to be um, used for insulation, and, and um, some of the old buildings in Perth have got insulation of seagrass inside their walls. Um, in, 2000, uh, in 1990s, early 1990s, from about... 1905 to about 1920, they harvested seagrass fibres from the bottom of Gulf St Vincent in um, in South Australia. Yep. Um, the companies were on the stock exchange in London. It was such a big industry. There were uh, about 100 dredges working there in this and they are using the fibre for packing for dynamite for the war, okay. for um, mixing with wool, for clothing, for suits and things like that. But... Uh, it stopped when the war stopped and then it was thought of to start again because of the use of because of the fibers were all cellulose and they could replace wood yeah right but th- when um, the government came to CSIRO and we told them <laughs> what what the damage would be if they started harvesting seagrass like that it didn't it didn't come up at all anymore right. so there's very little the use of seagrass like that for yeah. practical purposes. But it does have very uh, strong um, environmental uh, services. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So how are, we, how are we tracking here in terms of um, seagrass, uh, seagrass bed health within, within Port Phillip Bay? Um, it seems to be okay. Um, there, there was some lost. Um, I did some work when the dredging was on to see if the dredging would have any effect and we worked out that the dredging could only go for a certain number of days and it had to stop right. so that the seagrasses could recover because the, spo- the not the spoil but the um, plume from the dredges were shading the seagrasses and they weren't getting enough light to photosynthesise. Okay. So they were it was dying, yeah. um, in fact, and uh, we worked out that... They could have about 140 days of dredging and then they'd have to stop to let the seagrass recover, that sort of thing. But uh, as far as losing seagrass, there are areas where it's gone and come back, but mostly they're natural uh, causes. Right. Strong winds or 
Storm big storms or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. So you do yeah. tend to get a bit, I've noticed, washed up on the shores at Altona and all that sort of thing, near where you live at Sea Home and these sorts of areas, you get a bit of that washed up on the shore. Um, the the thing to be careful of there is that swans eat seagrass. Oh, yeah. And uh, they feed on seagrass by eating the underground stems and they let the leaves go. So if you, and at Sea Home, we've had 300 swans offshore there. If you have them there for a few days, there's a big drift on the beach of leaves. And you can notice these because they're green. They're not dead old leaves, but they're green leaves that the swans have discarded. Right. And right. Uh, But after storm, you certainly get seagrass on the beach as well because it all gets washed, washed up. Yeah. But not the rhizomes. Yeah. If you start getting rhizomes washed up, you know there's a big then storm, you know, a big problem. That's yeah. right, yeah, because yeah. it's totally ripped through the sediment. Wow, yeah. very interesting stuff. Well, we might uh, we might take a break and go to a uh, go to a little song. Um, as often happens on Out of the Blue, we th- uh, you know go along with a, a certain ideal, and then uh, the the show sort of changes mid tack. We were going to spend a little bit of time talking about marine protected areas, but if we don't get to that today, I'm sure we'll have another opportunity to do so in the future. Just that seagrasses are such a fascinating thing, and there's a lot of people. Very very, very interested in them, and uh, people would be more interested if they, uh, no doubt, if they knew a little bit more, which is uh, why we're here at 3CR trying to educate people on the um, on, on the, the nuances of these things in the marine environment. Okay, here's a uh, here's a song that I chose uh, just on the on the grounds that uh, Hugh often is not uh, not backwards in coming forwards, and uh, this is Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. Uh, one of the greats, Peter Gabriel. Check out his film clips if you get time. They're some of the most awesome that you're ever likely to see. Um, you're listening to three... There he goes, cutting in on me. Sorry about that. Um, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And uh, Hugh, did you want to give us a bit of an outline about um, seagrass monitoring and back to what we were talking about uh, at the start of the show with regards to marine protected areas and all of those sorts of issues that are bubbling away. Uh, your experience with monitoring uh, seagrass in, uh, in Port Phillip Bay. Um, first of all, why would you want to monitor? Um, because seagrass is so important, and I pointed that out earlier, we, we need to know that it's healthy. Um, the first monitoring in uh, Victoria was done in uh, Western Port Bay, actually, because at, uh, in 1973 and 74, they found out that the seagrass, had, they'd lost a lot of seagrass because of uh, sediment coming in, because of um, the water being stirred up a lot, and because of the uh, erosion along the edges of Western Port Bay. Then um, that same person who's now gone back to Canada um, worked in uh, Port Phillip Bay and started monitoring there. But monitoring is most important because we need to know the health of these ecosystems, any ecosystem we need to know the health of. Right. How are the fish in the on the reefs? How are the fish in the seagrass? How are the seagrass? How are the plants that live on the reef? All that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and what the what the water quality is like. Yes, uh, because the water quality affects all of these things under under the water. Um, so monitoring is most important. Now it's usually a dirty word for governments because you have to keep it going. Yes. So we change that to environmental um, assessment. We change the word to environment, but it means exactly the same thing (laughs) Um, because um, governments don't like to pay for this that's going on and on and on forever, and you do need to monitor forever. Yeah, right. Um, The simplest way you can monitor, the better. Uh, In Victoria, I took all of the monitoring of seagrass that I could find when I arrived here in in um, 2005 
and I couldn't find one story, not oh. anything about them at all. I couldn't say they were deteriorating. I couldn't say they were getting better. Nothing. Um, so, so the first thing to do is ask, what is your question? What, what, um, how much seagrass is there? How is how are we losing it, or how are we gaining it? So you need to know the boundaries. You need to map. Yes. Then you need to manage it, and you need to monitor it. So my th- there are my three M's. Yes. Right. Uh, map, monitor, manage. Excellent. Um, but uh, monitoring, for instance, really it, it, some of it was very very difficult for volunteers to do. Counting a tiny the leaves or the shoots on a plant and each each shoot consisted of five or six leaves and the leaves were about three millimetres or four millimetres across and to expect kids in the freezing cold of winter to be doing that was very difficult. Yes. So uh, hopefully that's changed now and we're going to measure the edge of the seagrass bed, mark it. Yep. Both edges, the shallow edge and the deep edge. The deep edge would be lost because the water quality is poor and the plants can't photosynthesize. The shallow edge would be lost because epiphytes, the little tiny plants that grow on seagrasses, have grown so much on the seagrasses that they stop the seagrasses uh, photosynthesizing and they die. Yes. Now, the reason that they're so, uh, well, they're opportunistic, these epiphytes, the reason that they grow so well is because of nutrients flowing into the sea from stormwater drains, from people uh, fertilizing golf courses, fertilizing their gardens, or from sewage plants. If the sewage plant, if the what's coming out of the sewage plant has got nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus in it, fertilizer, in fact. So that's why that's why we need to monitor. Yes. Yep. Um, it's very interesting stuff. Like so, uh, just from what you're saying there, Hugh, the, the the key is, like you said, to to map out where the what you'd find with the seagrass. A typical seagrass bed is the boundary of the seagrass bed is going to expand and contract pretty much continuously over the over the the, the time frame. Uh, you did mention before that you you need to sort of monitor forever, which is what you need to do. But um, over what sort of what sort of time frame would you expect to see changes occurring? Like, are we talking about one or two years? You'd expect to see some significant alterations in the boundaries how long's a piece of string on oh it's a bit of a wishy-washy question but. no no not at all it's a it's a most important question and some species uh we've, we've got them growing in corner inlet in victoria and in western australia it's mostly all um called posidonia that may be a hundred years to recover oh, wow so um in my experience i've seen one hundred year storm which took out a whole bed at, at uh, Tupils Bay near Albany. Wow. And uh, that is starting to recover now. Well, that must have been 20 years ago that I saw that happen. Gee. So it's starting to recover now. Now, some of these beds do grow very, very slowly. That um, mining that I told you about earlier, where they were taking the fibre, those were done in two, uh, 1905. You can still see the marks where they were taken out. Wow. And the sediment has returned. So it's still flat, but the seagrass restores so very slowly. Gee. 
And uh, so that's why it's important to make sure that some species are faster than others. Yes. But um, that's why it's important to know where you're going. Right. Yep. So is there a is there, just in, uh, in in finishing? We've only got about another uh, half a minute or so before we have to wind up the show today. But um, uh, is there any particular species you think that we should be concentrating on as a, if we are going to restore seagrass beds? Is there one that sort of stands out from the pack? Um, no, because for instance, in uh, Western Port and um, and Port Phillip Bay, there, there is only two main species there. So one is deeper and one is intertidal, so it, it gets exposed at low tide. And both of those need to, be, uh, need to be shown how we can restore them, and it hasn't been done yet. Right, right. That's a, a yep. work in progress. Very good. Well, thanks. For, uh, that's all we've got time for today on Out of the Blue. Thanks very much for coming in, Hugh. That's much appreciated. Stay tuned uh, at noon for Sally with Out of the Pan, and we will speak to you. We'll, uh, you'll, you'll hear from us at Out of the Blue next time.